Hello, and thank you for joining me for the fourth in this new series of podcasts from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and every month I'll be bringing you interviews with Faber authors talking about their latest work. Coming up later in this program is an interview with Stephen Armstrong. Stephen talked to me about his book War PLC, which is an astonishing, eye-opening investigation of the new corporate mercenaries. And as you begin to look into it, you start to see how many people, how large the contracts, how huge the numbers, the fact that some of these companies have helicopters, have aeroplanes, they have armoured vehicles, they have, they're using you know, mortars and rocket propelled grenades, and, and, and you realise that, th- that these are huge, huge concerns. My first guest today is Andrew Sean Greer. Andrew came into the Faber offices on a recent visit from San Francisco to talk to me about his new novel, The Story of a Marriage. The story is recounted by Pearlie Cook, looking back in old age at the events of 1953, which turned her quiet suburban life in the mist-enshrouded sunset area of San Francisco upside down. A figure from her husband's past comes into their lives, and nothing is ever the same again. I asked Andrew how he set about finding a voice for Pearlie, a character whose experience is so different from his own. I, I had to work very hard to develop it because it was, I mean, for me, writing a novel, really the hardest part is is finding the the way to tell it. I mean, I think anyone knows that when if they try to tell a story, that you work on it in order to find the right way to tell it and the pacing of it and the right voice and tone. And so it took a while. And it, the hard part for me, it didn't feel like was writing in the voice of of a woman, for instance, or, or someone very different experience than my own but really to find her own character that would get the tone of someone late in life remembering her younger self and expressing the emotions she had then with the remove that comes from from age. There's, there's quite a lot of reflection on that, on that distance that she's travelled from her younger self. She's now looking back from that position of, of accumulated knowledge, if you like. Yeah, well, and, and some t- it, it took a while for me to be able to write with saying, I did not know that then, but what I was probably experiencing was this so she's able to have that remove but I also wanted it to feel very immediate and intense and not entirely so distant from her other self and I wanted her to have some empathy for her younger self and what she was going through. The book is set in 1953 in the shadow of the Second World War and also with the immediate present of the Korean War was was that something which you knew was going to be the setting from the start or did you gravitate towards that? Well it, well, it sounds like a very subtle shift, but I, I moved the novel from 1952 to 1953, and for me it was a large change because I had done, I had wanted it to take place right after the war. I wanted it to take place at a, at a moment when the waters felt rather still in America, right before they were about to start moving again. And then I realized 53, there was so much going on, Rosenbergs and uh, sort of communist hearings and, and the Korean War, that I had to put it there without trying to put too much history into the book. A lot happens off stage, doesn't it, or is sort of reported at, at second hand in the book, and yet you're very aware that, that Pearlie is aware of what's going on in, in her world. You mentioned the Rosenberg case, which is very prominent, and, and the war, but it's always slightly removed or muffled. Yeah, well, it was, it's very hard because I know that we don't experience, we don't live in history that way, and we don't know what's going to turn out to be important and so I I tried to pay attention to what she would have read in the papers and would have responded to and in the Rosenberg case what she responds to is Ethel Rosenberg as a wife and that's the only reason I I put it in because I thought 
she would have a feeling about that. And the book is a portrait of a marriage, in a way, a portrait of other things too. And I suppose that the centre around which much of the book gravitates is Holland Cook, the, the husband of, of Parley. And yet in many ways he's, he's almost like an absence. He doesn't say very much, you don't hear very much about his inner thoughts. My first inclination was to pin him down, and I have versions, early versions, where his, eventually his thoughts and motives are entirely clear. And that felt disingenuous. That felt like that wasn't Pearlie's experience of him. And when I'm thinking back on, on, on that generation, it's not my experience of, say, my own grandfather, the very um, passive, reticent person. And I had to go back there. I had to sort of embrace that ambiguity as really what was at the heart of the book. And it was only then when I got to write the beginning all over again, once I'd finished a draft, and now it starts, um, we think we know the ones we love. And it turns out that ambiguity of knowing another person was what the book was about. His, his reticence, really, his withheldness, means that when near the end of the book, you actually do get a glimpse of how he saw things. It's, it's, an, it's an amazingly cathartic moment, I felt, as a reader. I'm, I'm glad to hear that, because it took a long time for me. That was one of the last things I wrote, was to try to get one moment of, of glimpsing for an instant, for her to see for one instant what his experience was and, to, and to, to feel how difficult it must have been for him all that time. She was so focused on herself and seeing him as a blank, but he was, in a way, having the same experience of her. What really drives the plot is the appearance of a third character from Holland's past who comes into their lives and, and completely changes it and, and leads them all to have to think about both the, the past, present, and, and the future. Can you say a little bit about, about Buzz and where he, where he comes from, as it were? Well, there are two aspects. One is is that he's, he's sort of a, a character from a family story of mine, of, uh, of someone who came into my grandmother's life and, and overturned things. And in some ways I think of him, if there's any character that's somewhat like me, it's him. And he has a very sure idea of what he wants from life. And his idea is that he's going to, in a way, he thinks he's going to sort of free everybody to have what they want. But he hasn't asked anyone else what they want. He just assumes it. Part of the, the atmosphere of the book is fog. It's set in one of the suburbs of San Francisco called Sunset. And it's not perhaps our, our normal British expectation of what San Francisco is like because the fog seems to be enveloping everything. And there's a, there's a fun fair where Buzz and Pally often meet. That seemed to me to really to say a lot about the kind of atmosphere of, of what was going on between the characters. Well, I, I knew when I was setting it in San Francisco that I, I didn't want it to be bright, sunny California life. And since I live there, I know there's a whole neighborhood that is, to me, fascinating because it's in the, the playland is gone, but it's just ocean now, ocean beach. But there used to be a huge roller coasters and Ferris wheels and sort of tunnels of love and fun houses and houses of horror all along there, covered in fog all year. No sun, cold winds blowing, a different world from the rest of San Francisco. And I could tell that that was the setting I wanted of a sort of calliope sounds, the fog, a kind of closed-in, claustrophobic world that um, was the only place that this story could, could take place. You, your 1950s is, is very vividly evoked. 
and, and yet at the same time very economically evoked. You don't go to town and, and give descriptions which would be alien to Pearlie, I, I, I think. But I wondered how you, how you, as a writer, set about researching that to capture the, the feel, not just the product names, but the sort of, the sort of feel of the, the 1950s. There's a, there's a very memorable description of a drugstore and the soda jerk pulling these, these, these sodas. And I wondered how, you, how did you do the research for that? There were a, a variety of, of ways. There was I read the newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle, in 1952 first, because I'd set it there first, and then all of 1953, or most of it, looking for initially also what how people saw the time they lived in, when it was lived, instead of our received history of that time. And then I, I did interviews with people, and some of it was, was just full, imagined from what the experience would be like. And then I learned from other novels to get rid of almost all my research and leave just the parts that I thought were, were telling bits because otherwise it feels belabored and, and not at all natural. Although it is, it's so hard, there's so many amazing products in those newspapers that it was, it was hard to take them out. And I think the, the economy of means that I referred to, I mean, it's almost sort of Chekhovian. It seemed to me that when you mention a letter... The letter is kind of there in in their sort of psychic world, and it comes back, or a gun, and it's got it, all these things. They're not they're not there as mere decorative props. They they really carry a lot of weight. That's good to hear. Yes, I did that on purpose. It's not a cluttered novel because of that. And so, there's a letter that I put, and it I needed the reader to pay attention to it, and and a gun also um, that has that same feeling of like something's going to be put to use, and sometimes it's um not the way you expect. But I, I used every object, gloves she wears, and lipstick purposefully, and not just as decoration. Now, here's a, a delicate question to ask any writer, but I'm emboldened to ask it because of a review I read, and I think it was the LA Times, about beautiful writing, because the book is beautiful. There are, there are sentences you, you want to sort of savour, like, like lines of poetry. But a reviewer said... It's, it's so beautiful, it's almost disruptive, because uh, I presume they meant it, it interrupts that sort of forward flow of, of the narrative. And I wondered, did you wrestle w- with yourself as you were writing to, to say, you know, this, is just, this is just too beautiful, Pearlie wouldn't have conceived of it in this way, and, and, and did things go on the, on the cutting room floor because of that? Oh, yes, there's so much cut. I, I have the novel, I think, in, in the Faber version is 195 pages. My file of cuts is... is is 400 pages. Mm. Now, that's, that's a lot of repeat material in there, but I, I try to remove as much as possible to make it, to make it Pearlie's voice, but I always saw hers as a, a lyrical form and that her inner life, her inner thinking, would be, would be full and rich and deep in that way, and that would give her a sort of a dignity looking back because she's, she's an older woman telling the story and she has had other life experiences we don't know about that give a depth to her understanding. And so I don't think it's something to, to, to trip up over, mm. I don't think. But I, in a small book, I wanted the experience to be one of intensity. Mm. Well, my experience as a reader wasn't everything counted. And I, I wanted to also to compliment you on um, the best supporting role by a dog, I think, in a novel that I've read lately. <laughs> you see, because he could so easily, Lyle could so easily have, have gone, but, but he seemed to carry, you know, he seemed to, he really played his part, I felt. Say a little bit about him. There was, he was, I really wanted to put a dog in a book for some reason, and it's a tough thing because it's an incredibly sentimental subject. 
and I, I think uh, I didn't do any research into the, the breed, but she has gotten a barkless dog. Um, I guess the Basenji is a barkless dog, although Lyle is, is, I think, a mutt off of that because she's trying to care for, for her husband's, what she thinks of as his heart condition. And he starts to take on... I kept him in the book. I could have cut something like that easily. That's the kind of thing I would cut. He took on a, a emblematic quality in the house. And um, and one point, I he runs away. And that also, something I could have cut, but became very important to me. And it was a, it was a, it was a great thing for me to write about. I think after finishing my first draft, I actually got a dog myself. I was so in love with the idea. I'd never owned a dog before. <laughs> so you'd kind, of, you'd kind of summoned up a fictional dog, and that had given you an appetite to be a real dog owner. Right, yeah. But I, did, I did not. It's a, it's a her, so it's not, a lo, not called Lyle, but called Olive. Yeah. And does she have a bark? She turns out she does, <laughs> but she's a she's a pug dog. They're not meant to bark that much, but she does. I was talking to Andrew Sean Greer, whose story of a marriage is available now. My second guest today is Stephen Armstrong, author of War PLC: The Rise of the New Corporate Mercenaries. The numbers of so-called private security contractors have mushroomed in just a few years, become a multi-billion-dollar industry. So much so that the U.S. and British efforts in Afghanistan and Iraq would quite literally grind to a halt without them. It's effectively the privatization of warfare, yet most people have little idea of what is going on. When I met Stephen, he told me he got interested in this subject while preparing for an interview with Tim Spicer, CEO of Aegis, one of the biggest private security contractors in the business. During research for the interview, it became clear to me, and this would have only been a couple of years ago, 2005, that these private security companies had something like twenty to 25,000 men on the ground in Iraq, and that I had not heard about it at all. Been, you look through, there's a tiny, tiny bit of coverage. I mean, really, hardly anything. And talking to him, his ideas, it became clear, were very much about the private sector's involvement in, in war. And as you begin to look into it, you start to see how many people, how large the contracts, how huge the numbers, the fact that some of these companies have helicopters, have aeroplanes, they have armoured vehicles, they have, they're using mortars and rocket-propelled grenades, and, and, and you realise that, th- that these are huge, huge concerns, and particularly in America, uh, companies like Blackwater are setting up additional companies, one called Greystone, which is designed to be a peacekeeping force, intervene in areas like Darfur, or get involved in espionage, spying on companies and protesters. It seems that from 2003 to 2007, we had, the world had created a private army, hundreds of thousands of men strong, earning hundreds of millions of dollars, and very few people <laughs> don't bring anything about it. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions I was going to ask you was to what extent you were surprised by what you found, to what extent you kind of had an inkling before you set out what was going on and to what extent your eyes were opened by the, the process of researching it? I think that by the time I got to proposal stage, I was aware that there were former SAS and former paratroopers and former US Navy SEALs and former Green Berets operating as bodyguards and guards on the ground in Iraq and in Afghanistan. I didn't realise quite how massive and regular what they call the contacts were, you know, the battles, and how that these guys would be involved in gun battles every day. And that some of these guys would be involved in organisations. One guy I um, interviewed extensively, who I gave in the book the name Mark Britton, it's not his real name, at one point had been, he'd been a Royal Marine, and he hadn't even been corporal when he left. 
And he joined a private security company and was given, almost overnight, the responsibility of a major. He was given 160 men. He built a fortified encampment to help a, a building project. And that he was able to buy an enormous arsenal of weapons. At one point, he engaged in a, in a full-scale firefight with insurgents. And then I also didn't realise the strange, macabre humour that surrounded this, because he would also employ lots of Iraqi locals to help him out in various things, driving, a few security guards and so forth. And after this enormous firefight, one of his Iraqi employees came up to him and said, you know, the, uh, the insurgents have put a, a $5,000 price tag on your head. And he said, why is that? And they said, well, they thought you overreacted a bit yesterday. <laughs> so it's, you know, genuinely is the kind of thing that if you put it down as fiction, no one would believe it anyway. So. But then as you look a bit further, you find the espionage thing was something that I had no idea, that speaking to one guy at a company called Diligence, he was explaining that probably 25% of the people involved in the Heathrow climate change camp, he estimated, would be private spies employed by corporations to keep tabs on what the movement was doing. And whilst I was researching the book, the assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police at that time, Tarek Kafour, who was in charge of the Olympics, spoke at the British Association of Private Security Companies conference. And the, and the BASPC are sort of the lobbying body of, of these companies, which was set up in 2006, really in an attempt to manage what regulation might or might not come. And he spoke at their conference, really outlined the situation in London in 2012. Olympics, Queen's Diamond Jubilee, Wimbledon, they've got the Notting Hill Carnival, all of these events running concurrently, huge, huge events with heads of state. And they had to prepare for ter multiple terrorist attacks across the country. And he basically said, we haven't got the men. And I could see myself part privatising policing. And again, this seemed to me... The idea is what is a state? A state is the thing that has a monopoly on the use of force, and that's the contract we make with our state, our government. We say, we agree not to defend ourselves violently. We agree not to fight each other. We agree that you rule you know, the rule of law, and we give you our powers to defend ourselves in exchange for you exercising it responsibly. And it seemed to me that there were, there were ideas going on in governments all around the world which involved them effectively letting go of that monopoly without consulting us. And many people listening to this and reading your book may find themselves thinking, these contracts are worth millions, sometimes billions of dollars in total. Why doesn't the army or the government simply pay more to their regular forces to carry out these tasks? You know, the thought of the army being guarded by a private security firm seems in some ways absurd. So can you explain how, how it comes about that there is this need to pay outside contractors to fulfil these tasks? In part, I think it's historical. The standing armies of the 20th century were designed to deal with things like the Cold War. And when the Cold War faded in the early 90s, basically the armies didn't need to have as many men. And there's, there still is no real significant threat to the British homeland. There's no power out there as there was in the 80s with tanks lined up ready to attack. You know, The, the need for a huge standing army is not... There, it's piecemeal. You'd need, you know, look, we're pulling out of Iraq now, so therefore things will change in terms of the balance of troops. So, so the army is now scaled down to about seventy thousand men. So, the, the size of the British army reduced, the size of the American army, the size of all these armies reduced, and also we moved away from our involvement in, for example, Africa. We, we you know, the, the West stopped propping up half its African states, and the East stopped propping up its African states, and that's why a lot of Africa went absolutely off in the nineties. Um, and so we didn't really have the strength or the power to intervene necessarily. Now, as 
time goes on and the country becomes wealthier, the army has found it harder and harder to maintain even that very limited 70,000 strength. In fact, the army is currently 10% under strength. Of the troops that it does have, 10% of them are foreign nationals. So the British army is recruiting in um, uh, Jamaica, it's recruiting in Fiji, it's recruiting all around the world, you know, in countries where the salary of a British soldier is handsome. Whereas in the UK, the salary of a British soldier is considerably worse than a plumber, and you're going to be going out to Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's proving increasingly difficult to even maintain a small-scale army. So if that's the case, the army are thinking, why not just invest all our money in the area that counts, the assault combat brigades? You know, we could, we could contract out the cooking, save money. It's the 80s contract-out, opt-out philosophy taken to the moon. OK, we could contract out the time of the truck driving. Um, actually, you know what? We could contract out guarding the trucks themselves. I mean, we don't need to put soldiers there. So what's happening is the military is moving into making only the essential elements of war fighting, the convoys with weapons in, the man in the trenches, as being... Because, as, as a historian, uh, again, Christopher Kinsey says, the point is a combat infantry regiment is a non-profit, it's not profitable. <laughs> but everything else could be. So these static guards, private sector offers them cheaper. That's the answer, really. It's a money saver. One of the astonishing things in a book which is full of astonishing things, you quote Donald Rumsfeld on the 10th of September 2001, where he says the big question was the privatisation of America's wars. The day before the planes crash into the Twin Towers, that was already on the agenda. How, how to? So he, he portrays the Pentagon like, a, like an obstacle, really, to the pursuit of America's objectives. Yes, the Donald Rumsfeld speech is... Very, very interesting to read because he begins by describing this enemy. And it sounds like, a, and particularly when you read that he gave it on the 10th of September, you, you, you begin thinking, well, maybe he knew, maybe he knew what was coming, you know. But actually what he's talking about is the Pentagon bureaucracy. And he, he, he comes from that neocon school which really started looking at war after the first Gulf War. In the first Gulf War, there was one private operator in the US military for every nine soldiers, so that there would be people manning missiles, maybe. If McDonnell Douglas produces a brand new missile, they'll provide a couple of engineers to help, you know. After that war, Rumsfeld and Cheney began a process whereby they would opt out a lot of this by something called the Log Cap Program, which was really about getting civilian companies in to run a lot of, in this case, construction, repair, not war fighting at all. Um, elements of, of the US military. And that process had, had accelerated to such an extent that by the time the US Army went into Iraq in 2003, there were nine contractors for every one soldier. So they felt they'd succeeded. And as we can see from the situation in Iraq, oh, how they succeeded. Because this whole, this ideological perception of how the neocon movement, their idea of privatizing the Pentagon was also tied up with their ideas about the market state, about liberation of the Middle East and democracy and all this kind of thing. And I think that, you know, it's clear now, I mean, when people in Britain looked at the war in Iraq, I think, and this is just my opinion, I think that people talked a lot about war for oil and that, you know, it was all a cynical, manipulative attempt to gain the Iraqi oil fields. And who knows, that may well have been true. But certainly within the neocon movement, there was a pure ideological burning feeling that if they went into Iraq and liberated it, democracy would flourish overnight. Which is why when Paul Bremer, who is sent over by the White House to take over in, in, in Iraq, arrives, the first thing he does in this war-torn, insecure country is dismiss the army with Order 1, debathification of the army. Everybody goes home with armfuls of weapons. They go home with their collection calls, with their rocket launchers. Obviously, instant insurgency. 
So then he has to deal with that chaos, and the way he deals with that chaos is by hauling in the private security companies. He, he hires Blackwater to be his own personal security detail in a multi-million dollar contract. Before Bremer arrived, his predecessor, who'd only been there, I think, a couple of months, used a small unit of Texas National Guardsmen to handle his security as he moved around Iraq. He was fine. Bremer was so hated and there were so many prices on his head that he had to have this huge security detail of planes and armoured cars all provided by the private sector. And so as, as Bremer reached the end of his, his tenure, he did what he thought would be the right thing for the uh, contractors and he passed the Order 17, very notorious Order 17, which said that anyone who works for the coalition in any capacity cannot be subject to Iraqi law or Iraqi courts, which effectively means if they kill an Iraqi, nothing can be done. So that's how you set up this situation where there are loads of guns, loads of insurgents and loads of private soldiers who can shoot to kill. I wanted to ask you finally, you mentioned the fact that this issue is really scarcely on the domestic agenda. I just wondered what you hoped this book would achieve. I suppose what I hope is that I knew nothing about this. And when, for instance, I've done things like Start the Week, you've found people on that programme who are very, very informed journalists who also have not had this brought to their attention. And you just think that, you know, it's going on. It's going on in our name. You know, people in Iraq and Afghanistan see these companies as being British companies acting on behalf of the British. There's even bits in the book where the Metropolitan Police Officer talks about these guys perhaps part policing the streets, in which case this will be, they'll be policing us. They'll be, they'll be exerting force on us. And we don't know anything about what's going on as, a, as an average punter. We haven't even begun to look at it. So, I don't know, the best you can hope for is that people read it and think this is something that we ought to find out about. We ought to pursue this and maybe we, as a country, ought to talk about this a bit before we carry on doing it, before we have a British Nissa Square, before British ex-soldiers machine gun innocent civilians in our name. That was Stephen Armstrong, whose book, War PLC, is out now. You can listen to longer versions of both the interviews in this programme on the Faber website, and you can also hear the authors reading from their books. You can subscribe free to this podcast by simply typing Faber into iTunes and be sure that you don't miss the next edition. I hope you'll be able to join me then. For the moment, thank you for listening, and goodbye.